0: Hello, Vass here with the How To Academy podcast. James Nestor's Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, was one of the blockbuster books of 2020, spending 18 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. How and why was James's investigation into something we all do 25,000 times a day without thinking about it, heralded as a groundbreaking and even life-changing book, by physicians, athletes, and his fellow authors. We found out when he joined How To Academy for a live stream, in-conversation event with Hannah McInnes. Enjoy.
1: Central to the premise of the book is that we are, all of us, 90% of us, most of us, getting breathing wrong, and we need to relearn how to do it. And I know the reaction that you very often get is people say, well, I've actually been breathing my whole life, could be a long life of breathing and I'm absolutely fine. Thank you very much. Why do I suddenly need a book to tell me how to relearn something I do every day?
2: Well, that's exactly what I believed when I first started researching breathing is I didn't think it was something that we could really hone that would be able to transform us in so many ways. And I especially didn't think that there was a respiratory pandemic. I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about deficiencies in breathing across wide populations but when you start actually looking at the data and when you start looking into yourself you realize that most people are breathing inadequately or improperly well what does that mean to breathe inadequately or improperly Uh, snoring sleep apnea chronically stuffy nose asthma copd other respiratory issues all of these are breathing disorders And some of us don't have them every single day of the year, but they occur throughout different seasons, right? Just like allergies do. So when you start looking at that, and if you start looking at the incidences of respiratory infections as well, and you look at other animals in the animal kingdom, you realize that no other animals are suffering from these things on the scale that humans are. And it turned out that our ancestors, our human ancestors weren't suffering on the scale that we suffer from these things either and so the more i dug into this the more i realized that there was this hidden epidemic that we have essentially lost the ability to breathe properly and i want to just clear up one thing the fact that i'm alive right now and i'm living that means i'm able to breathe sure but compensation is different than health right so there are people who have been eating their whole lives as well right they've been eating junk foods and their their bodies are breaking down so we can get by eating bad food but that doesn't mean it's healthy for us and breathing is where we get most of our energy most of our energy is from breath from oxygen so how we take that breath in how we exhale it makes an enormous difference to our health and well-being
1: and just before we find out from you after all your research how we should be doing it right this, I mean, let's just talk a little bit about that research. But this was a very personal mission for you, and you went on you know, a seriously long, intensive, huge journey. So, what prompted it? Um, you know, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the length of, of your research, because it's quite clear this has become, still is, after such a long time, a labour of love for you now.
2: Well, it was a a personal issue I was interested in, which was the problem for me as a journalist, as a science journalist. I don't write memoirs. I don't want to write things from just from my perspective. I want to write about data. I want to write about research, right? But I, I kept having these specific instances in which my breathing was really suffering. And I thought this was perfectly normal to suffer from bronchitis quite often, to suffer from mild pneumonia once a year. But then I started really looking into it and wondering what is the core issue of these problems? People say, oh, it's because you're growing older. Oh, it's because you surf a lot. Wasn't really going for that. So I started looking into breathing, the role of breathing and if healthy breathing could actually help reduce the symptoms of these problems. And it turns out that there was some science supporting that idea. So I started exploring this myself, having my own experiences, feeling how this was changing me. But it was really a conundrum for me because, again, I had no intention of of writing a personal story of my transformation for breathing. Other people can do that. That's not my thing as a journalist. So I just kept with this uh, story, my my own personal development for years and years, because I didn't know what to do with this with this work, what was happening. And it was eventually when I met freedivers, these are people who do something that is supposed to be scientifically impossible, okay, medically impossible. They can hold their breath for seven, eight, nine minutes at a time. The longest breath hold is 12 and a half minutes. And they can dive down to depths of around 150 meters on a single breath of air. And so I was on a reporting mission to write about freedivers. I saw this. I thought, my God, these people are able to do this with their breath control underwater. Where else can breathing bring us uh, on land? You know, what else can it do for us? If these people are doing something that is supposed to be impossible, what other impossible things can we measure? Can we find out about breathing? And that's really what set me on this Path. It was a circuitous path, many forks in the road. Uh, this book took me forever. I had to keep rewriting it because the stuff, the research seemed so fantastical. It seemed so improbable. But then there's the research, you know, there's the x rays, there's the data. And eventually I realized that there was a deeper story in the seemingly simple, mundane subject of breathing.
1: But it's extraordinary, isn't it? Your your book has done, of course, so well because it's a miraculous, potentially miraculous cure. And yet we've waited for your book to find that out. There's so little, the virtues of, of this, of, of breath and of breathing and this simple technique is so little told in Western medicine. You say in the book, how could this be so important and so unimportant at the same time? And I just wondered why, why have we had to wait? And I'm not putting down journalism, of course, is my, my my career, but why have we had to wait for a journalist to sort of tell us about this and to wait for your book?
2: Well, I would love to take that credit, but I can't because there's been so many people in the field that have been doing this research for literally decades, top institutions at Harvard, at Stanford, at Oxford, more at Yale. So they've been saying this over and over, but their work has been hidden in academic journals. And let's be honest, these scientific studies are very hard to read. (laughs) They're written in a language that is not accessible to the general population. So my job is to Find these people, interview them, look at their research, look at the studies they've done and try to translate their English into the English that other people can understand. So I'm just a filter for this. Uh, My own personal story made it in a little bit to that into the book. I didn't want it to be in there. Uh, My editor insisted just to give a little context of my background, but the, the real subject is the reader. And I wanted to make that very important that each page is a mirror onto the reader and allowing them to understand their body more. If I have to show up and pop my head in to be a straw man here and there, I'm fine with doing that. But at the end of the book, I want people to understand their breathing and how it can affect them more. So to answer your question about why did it take so long? I I think the best parallel to this would be nutrition, right? We've known for over a hundred years, I can show you scientific studies of researchers saying that the modern industrial diet is going to destroy our health. Okay. We've known this. How long did it take us to move away from canned fruits and vegetables, to eating everything processed, to Wonder Bread, processed grains. Uh, We're still eating a lot of this stuff. We know it's bad for us, but it seems like maybe in the past 20 years or so, many of us have gotten the clue that that what we have been told about diet has been completely wrong. Right. Most of the stuff I ate growing up is just just appalling. And to think that we have been told that this is a part of, of a healthy diet to eat all of these processed high sugar grains is, is just garbage. So I think that breathing is following in that that same sort of arc in which the ancients have known about this for literally thousands of years. Scientists have been testing this for hundreds of years, and Western science have been have been showing this. But uh, I think just recently with the COVID epidemic, we've lost the ability to breathe. And so people say, hey, maybe breathing is important. And I think that that's one of the reasons, uh, one of the main reasons that so many people are more aware of their breath and what it can do for us and what happens when we breathe dysfunctionally, how it can ruin our health so quickly.
1: Let's make sure we, let's talk about, about all of those things, you know, what it can do for us, what happens when we don't do it right. And there are so many different areas and techniques that you say um, by your hundredth breath in the close of this book, um, you and I will know how the air that enters your lungs affects every moment of your life and how to harness its full potential until your final breath. There's a lot to take in, as I say, through the pages. And before we go into some of the bits in more detail, I, I wonder if you, you would be able to sort of articulate what your main hope that readers would take away if they if they were to sort of take away one thing to tell people and to take into their lives from this from this book and also from this talk what would be that kind of main point
2: i think the main point is not to take your breath for granted just because you are breathing doesn't mean you're necessarily breathing well So there are permutations in that. And Western science is focused so much on that you're breathing. So my father-in-law is a pulmonologist. My brother-in-law is an ER doctor, right? We talk about this stuff all the time about the problems associated with not breathing. But so few of us in Western medicine are talking about how exactly you're breathing and how you can switch your breathing to really transform your bodies in a lot of ways. So I think that the takeaway would be that This is something our breath is something that is so powerful. I show you how powerful it is in the book, but in order to really appreciate it, you need to find out yourself. And luckily, this isn't asking you to go on a diet for six months or to start exercising two hours a day. Our breathing is something we carry around with us our entire life. So we can focus on our breath, no matter if we're watching a Zoom conference or if we're jogging, or if we're answering emails, and we can reap the benefits from that. The science is, is so clear on that.
1: So it feels to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the main and most crucial aspect of breathing that we're getting wrong is keeping our mouths open. And your rule is, in capital letters, I feel I've written in capital letters, shut your mouth. So please explain this for people who aren't, aren't familiar with it. Should we be breathing all the time in and out through our noses and what happens when we don't do that, when we breathe through our mouths instead?
2: So on the the foundation of healthy breathing, the first part is awareness, right? You have to become aware of your breath. And now we can get into some of the nitty gritty of of what you can do after you become aware of your breathing. So you're hundred percent right is the first thing you need to do is shut your mouth and breathe through your nose. And I'm more convinced now than I've ever been that no matter what you eat, no matter how much you're exercising or whatever, if you are a mouth breather, you're never, ever going to be healthy. And this is because the job of the nose is to filter air. It's to condition it. It's to heat it. It's to moisten it. There's 30 other functions of the nose, right? Because we want that air that we take into our bodies to be pressurized, to be conditioned so that we can extract more oxygen from it. That's what the nose does. This is an incredibly ornate, sophisticated, complex organ. And if you looked at a cross section of it, it has all of these different pathways, it's covered in different tissues, there's hair in there, There's, there's mucus in there. All of these things serve a purpose. We're meant to breathe through our noses. That doesn't mean you can't occasionally breathe through your mouth as a backup system. Of course you can. I'm breathing through my mouth a little bit as I'm talking to you now. When you're laughing, you breathe through your mouth, right? This is all perfectly fine, but the primary route through which you should be bringing air in and out of your body is the nose. And if you don't believe me, look at any other animal in the wild and look at how it's breathing. Look at a cheetah when it's running at 50 miles per hour, you know, it's still breathing through its nose. All other animals are habitual nasal breathers. Modern humans are not. And we can see from the skeletal record that our ancestors were also habitual nasal breathers. How do we know that? Because we can look at the way that their skulls have been formed over the ages. Okay. And if you're a mouth breather, your face is going to grow differently. We know that as well. So I could give you a whole laundry list of reasons, but um, listen to what your mom said, you know, stand up straight, shut your mouth and uh, you'll be much better off. <laughs>
1: I'm sure people just from that. And there's just so many more questions that follow. I mean, what you go into in depth in the book is at the time. So we could think about that during the day. Let's come on to exercise later, where it goes out the window. I, I've been trying, and that would be from experience. But at night, and this is where you know you talk about many people breathe through their mouths at night, and you suggest doing something that feels quite extreme, which is taping up your mouth at night to stop yourself doing
2: that. Yeah, and I again, I wish I could take credit for this hack. Uh, I can't because it sounded so suspicious and sketchy when I first heard about it. So more than 60% of the population breathes through an open mouth at night. If you're waking up throughout the night and your mouth is dry, if you constantly need to drink water, if you go to sleep with a huge mug of water by your bed, this is what I did for as long as I've known, You are a mouth breather at night and that's not good because a third of your life, you're taking in unprocessed, unfiltered air. So all the dust, allergens, mold, pollution, whatever else there is in the environment is going to enter straight into your lungs. So when you're breathing through your mouth, you can think of your lungs as an external organ, right? There's no filter to it at all. So easier said than done, shut your mouth in the daytime. That's a little easier because you can become aware of it because you're conscious. What happens when we go to sleep and when gravity works against us and we breathe through an open mouth? So I had learned from Dr. Ann Kearney at Stanford. I had talked with her early on and she said, oh, I prescribed tape to all of my patients. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? She said, yeah, they put a little piece of tape on their lips to keep their mouths shut, which to me, I thought this was some like, hostage situation, but it's it's really not. It's this very uh, light adhesive tape placed in the middle of your mouth. And it turns out that so many leaders in the field of both sleep medicine, dentistry, and more prescribe tape to adolescents, to kids, to adults, to keep their mouth shut. This is not a pleasant thing at the beginning, everybody. So just, just to be clear, my experience I think was similar to other people where it was so awkward and it felt so weird but after a while, I got used to it after a couple of weeks. Now it's really hard for me to get a good night's sleep without it. And I know this because I track my sleep and I can see a huge ding to my sleep quality when I don't wear this tape. So I've, I've been wearing it for for years.
1: I was listening to a podcast with you earlier where the interviewer, Rangan Chatterjee, and sure so many people know him, said that his wife had started and now bounces out of bed about three hours earlier than she did and just feels amazing so you, and i know you've had a great deal of of feedback across the board that just has had revolutionary effects on
0: people
2: yeah and and those are just two anecdotes right those are just two case studies you shouldn't take that as as scientific proof or anything luckily there's been so much science showing the difference of sleeping with a closed mouth, it's becoming an obligate nasal breather at night. It can reduce snoring. It can reduce some forms of sleep apnea. It can vastly improve your sleep. No one's really arguing with this, right? Uh, it, this isn't very controversial stuff. And yet you have the majority of the population that had never been told this before, right? (laughs) People with snoring and sleep apnea uh, have never been, been, it's never been mentioned to them that this can help reduce your incidences of sleep apnea and snoring. I wanna be very clear, this is not a cure-all for everything and it's not gonna fix everyone of every problem, but this is a hack that is free, that is available to everyone and there are no negative side effects to breathing through your nose at night. You're only going to benefit from that. It's going to be awkward at the beginning if you've been a habitual mouth breather for for decades and decades, but there's no negative side effects. And see for yourself, track your own sleep, and I, I think you'll see what happens. Uh, you know, when we're sleeping, this is the time for our bodies to restore themselves. They shouldn't be stressed. What happens when you're snoring and have sleep apnea? <laughs> you're stressing yourself out for eight hours. Uh, you get a uh, jump in blood sugar. And this is why sleep apnea has been tied to the onset of diabetes in adulthood and Alzheimer's and on and on because sleep is our time to restore. When you breathe through your nose, you're gonna calm your body down. You're gonna get more oxygen. You're gonna open up the airways more. So uh, once you learn it that way and look at it that way, that there are only benefits to be had. I think it's a little easier to do this crazy thing which is to put a little piece of tape on your mouth and see if that works for you.
1: I'm, I'm breathing through my nose as, as I listen to you and it's calming me down. And I, I love it because it's like listening to somebody sort of selling a sort of elixir that you then go off and Google and find is kind of way beyond your price range and you can only sort of ship it from out of Mongolia. And instead you're actually talking about breathing. So it's a wonderfully, um, but you sell it very very well and it's so easy to do. And the other thing I feel like you've developed, you, you've touched on it, but you can tell in the book, you've developed this kind of profound love of the nose. Um, the magic of the nose and its healing function is, is what you write. And I, I'm wondering what you've discovered. You, you've mentioned some, but just how important the work our nose does, but also our two nostrils, left and right, the, the differing roles that they play in all of this.
2: So I was lucky enough to become... Good friends with Dr. Jayakar Nayak is the chief of rhinology research at Stanford. I think he thought I was absolutely crazy when I asked him for an interview at the beginning, but then we started talking and we still talk quite often now. And so he really introduced me to the science of this stuff. And he is the top of the top, real leader in the field, big nose guy, right? He does a lot of nasal surgeries as well. And so it was through him that I got to understand and appreciate this this thing called the nose and what it does. And as I got deeper into this research, it started getting really weird where I started to find science that was telling us that different nostrils here our right and left nostril will elicit different functions in our body. And yogis have known about this for thousands of years. They have a whole school of yoga called Nadi Shodhana or alternate nostril breathing. If you've ever been to a yoga class, maybe at the end or at the beginning, you breathe in through your right and exhale through your left. And there's so many different variations you can do of that. What that is doing is you are taking conscious control of something your nostrils are already doing naturally. So, from every 30 minutes to three to four hours, our nostrils will switch dominant. So we'll be breathing primarily through our right nostril, then we'll be breathing primarily through our left nostril. Sometimes they'll be open at the same time. So this is called the nasal cycle. We've known about it since 1895, a German scientist named Kaiser discovered this, but he didn't know why our noses would possibly do this until we got machines to measure what happened when we breathe through our right nostril and left nostril. And it turned out that what those yogis were saying is 100% true, that right nostril inhalations increase body heat, increase heart rate, increase blood pressure, stimulate more connections on the left side of our brain, which is associated with logical functions left side inhales and exhales through the left nostril, to calm ourselves down, our heart rate will slow down, our blood pressure will go down. And we can see this with EEG studies of what happens to the brain, how wild is this? And it's not just one study, there's there's dozens of them that have shown the differences of these two little portals into our body through breathing. And to me, what's so fascinating is our bodies naturally do this. If we're nasal breathing, if we're mouth breathing, all of those functions go out the window.
1: So to do that, you have to physically close
2: one and one. If you want to hack the process, you don't have to do anything if your nose is clear because your body naturally does this. One side will, the tissues will engorge with blood to block it off as the other side opens. And just to think that this is what's happening throughout the day. I mean, it's kind of a beautiful thing that your body is doing this. And there's some research that that suggests that it's doing this in order to balance itself throughout the day. We know when you're sick, those cycles increase rapidly, right? So your body reacts, it shifts the cycles depending on your physiological or mental state, which I think is just so wildly interesting. And this is the weird stuff you get once you start spending a couple of years researching breathing. So, so be forewarned, people. It gets really
1: strange. <laughs> um, so, you you've explained the sort of the, the, the process we should be breathing through our noses. You go into a lot of detail in the book, and there's different techniques. You do different things at different times, but I'm sure people are sitting there at home, I have no doubt, sort of going, trying to go through the motions, breathing through their noses. And then the next logical question then is, how long for how, how slowly how many how long should we hold it when we're sort of doing it because it feels like the longer that you breathe in and the slower the more calming uh that is but i know that there are you know moments where you say breathe less and moments breathe more
2: It gets really confusing. And when you pick up a book of pranayama, as as I did many, many times, there's some exercises that have you hardly breathe at all and hold your breath. Then there's exercises that have you hyperventilate, right? And they're supposed to elicit all of these health benefits, but who's right, right? And now there's different schools like Buteyko that says, just breathe slowly, breathe slowly through your nose. Wim Hof method, if if you're familiar with Wim Hof, he's like, everybody breathe as much as you can. So uh, the answer is they're all right. It depends on what you want out out of your breath. And each of these breathing techniques, these are exercises. So this is equivalent to like going to the gym, right? You have a small amount of exercise to reset your body to make you more fit. That foundation of healthy breathing, that isn't about doing exercises, right? It's about allowing your body to do what it's naturally designed to do. It just so happens to be that so many of us are so divorced from that we walk around with a stuffed nose all year thinking this is normal we walk around uh, sleeping with an open mouth at night we breathe way too much so the first thing we need to do before we get into the fancy breathwork stuff is reset that foundation and that foundation starts with breathing through the nose easier said than done for a lot of people who have allergies and other issues where they have nasal breathing problems. You have to fix that first and foremost. There's a zillion things I could tell you how to do. I won't go down that road, but you have to become a nasal breather. After that, breathing slowly, breathing rhythmically and breathing lightly will only benefit you. It doesn't matter if you're working out. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in front of a computer breathing this, this is the way the body naturally wants to receive air. Look at an infant breathing. Look at a dog breathing when it's sleeping. Look at any other animal. It's breathing very slowly, lightly into the stomach, through the nose. And just by breathing this way, you can calm your body down. You can take over your nervous system, which is supposed to be autonomic. It's not. We can control it with breathing and elicit a relaxation response in our body that is measurable. It's measurable with our heart rate, it's measurable with stress hormones, it's measurable with brainwave patterns. So just by breathing in this natural way, we can do all these things. If you wanna juice that up and get into some heavy duty breathing stuff, that leads into a whole separate category of human potential. But I think the most important thing is just to get yourself up to stasis first, to get yourself up to normal, then you can go on from there
1: the exhalation the importance of that is sometimes not known and you go in depth into that and experiments have been done in the past then on to with sports with athletes at the highest you know of their, of their field the exhalation is more important is that right
2: uh the exhalation and inhalation this is the yin and the yang right so you need one to have the other and and so I, I don't like to look at these things as diametrically opposed. I look at them as, as complements to one another. So most of what you're gonna learn in pranayama and breath work is controlling the amount of time of the inhalation and exhalation. And there's all these variations on the theme. This is what they're all doing. Okay. I'm gonna tell you the secret. I'm gonna save you from reading all of these books right now. So when you inhale, you stimulate the body. Okay, that's why your heart rate goes up right now. If you inhale, you're going to feel your heart rate go up as you exhale, you relax the body. So if you want to stimulate the body, you're going to be inhaling more than you are exhaling. If you want to relax the body, you're going to be exhaling longer than you're inhaling. So you may have heard of four, seven, eight breathing. This is inhale to four, hold for seven, exhale to eight. What are you doing for the vast majority of the time? You're holding your breath or you're exhaling. This relaxes the body, okay? And there's so many other breathing techniques who take a breathing, inhale to four, exhale to eight. Okay, what are you doing? More than half the time, you're exhaling. So we can just try a little trick here. People can take their hand, place it over their heart. You're gonna inhale to a count of four. We're just gonna exhale to eight. If that's too long for you, cut it to six. No one's judging you. So we can just, Inhale and feel your heart rate. Inhale to four, one, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Inhale, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So you've heard of the heart rate variability marker. This is on so many different wearables. It's the latest craze for athletes and for judging sleep. This is how heart rate variability is measured by the shortest amount of time between your inhales and the longest amount of time on your exhales. And that is a view into our nervous system function. So to me, it's fascinating that we can hop into our own nervous system. We can rewire it essentially through our breathing and by doing this in a conscious way. And you can do it in any number of fancy ways, but again, the foundation's Of what they're doing, physiological reasons are premised on that inhalation and exhalation.
1: And we tend to think of the thing we we are trying to get rid of, that's sort of is carbon dioxide, kind of a bad rap. (laughs) Your research suggests actually, and I know you were sort of skeptical at first, which you know, as you should be, about this idea that your partner in crime Olson tells you that carbon dioxide can be good i mean your experiment if you could tell us about it with a dr feinstein was for me one of the most sort of visceral parts of the book where i was sort of gasping for breath but absolutely fascinating looking into the sort of benefits of carbon dioxide
2: so co2 gets a really bad rap rightfully so because there's too much co2 in the atmosphere and if you don't believe that Uh, please go read the thousands of studies first, and then we can have a conversation about it. So whenever we hear CO2, it's bad. There's too much. it's, It's warming the earth. It's causing climate change. All this is true, people, because we can measure it, right? But CO2 in our bodies, we need a balance of it. We have way more CO2 than we have oxygen in our body, and we need a balance of CO2. In yoga classes, I used to hear Be sure to exhale, get all that toxic CO2 out of your body. This is crazy talk, because if you don't have the proper amount of CO2 in your body, nothing's gonna work right. And I'll show you what I mean. If you take 10 or 20 very deep breaths, and you breathe like that, you're gonna feel like some lightness, some tingling in your head, in your fingers. This is causing vasoconstriction in these areas. That's caused because there isn't enough CO2. CO2 is a vasodilator. This is what helps open up our blood vessels. And if we don't have enough CO2, our blood can't get to where it's supposed to be, which makes it harder for our bodies to get oxygen. This isn't my hypothesis. It's not my theory. This came from studies done 130 years ago. Scientists had discovered this. Christian Bohr discovered this. He was the father of Niels Bohr, famous, quantum mechanics scientists. So we've known this for a long time, and yet so many of us have been obsessed with oxygen. Well, oxygen can't do what it does if it's not in the presence of CO2. So don't think of CO2 as a bad thing. Think of CO2 as a complement to oxygen. And most of us, we have seen Breathe too much, and by breathing too much, we make it much harder for our bodies to get this oxygen. And as as you know, you've read the book. This leads to panic. It leads to anxiety. It leads to asthma attacks. It leads to so many other chronic problems.
1: But that moment, and that, that you discover just the, the sort of strange potentials of the experiments of of Dr. Feinstein. If I, I think I've got that right, he he, in his experiments, which hopefully you could tell us about is saying that through your breath, you can actually really can control things like asthma, but also mental problems, such as having panic attacks and anxiety.
2: Absolutely. And what was so interesting about Feinstein's work, he's a neuropsychologist. He was at Laureate Institute of Brain Research when I was talking with him. I still talk with him uh, somewhat often, which is fantastic. And he's furthering this, this research. He was using a technique that was developed more than 80 years ago to help people with anxiety. It worked better than anything else. And it was conducted at leading institutions. It was, if you're looking at someone who suffers from chronic panic issues or fear-based problems, even anorexia and anxiety, as a population, they breathe way too much and their CO2 levels are very in an unhealthy level. Okay. We know this because there's been studies that have measured them. So the thinking was, if you're able to allow them to have more CO2 on the body, they will be able to get more blood flow to these essential areas in the brain. Because many of these people have been conditioned to over-breathe because they associate holding their breath with an attack, which is why you can see people with asthma or panic. They tend to breathe like this. (sighs) These short, stilted breaths. So, the reason they breathe this way is they become conditioned to overbreathe because they don't want to have an attack. But the sad irony is, breathing this way will elicit an attack. So, they're trapped in this negative feedback loop. So, the thinking here, I realize this is complicated. I'll, I'll, I'll simplify it here. The thinking here is to give these people CO2, breaths full of CO2, which can help reset the systems in their body so that they will naturally breathe more slowly because they're more comfortable with higher levels of CO2. And that's what the therapy is. It's so seemingly simple, it's so cheap, and yet this was proven more effective than any other therapy 70, 80 years ago. It was never disproven, it's just, we forgot about it. And so Feinstein is one of the leaders in the field bringing this back and he was doing this research for the National Institutes of Health here in the US. So this isn't some sketchy, you know, self-funded thing. This is taxpayer funded research and uh, it worked incredibly well because of course it did. We already knew it worked well. He was just trying to buttress what we already knew about this science.
1: And that's of course why you've titled it, the lost art, this new science of the lost art because everything, you know, as you've said numerous times, everything, was once being done and we sort of lost it and it's it's coming back, and thankfully so. And I mean, some of the people that you meet, um, a lot of people you meet are dentists, the people you go to see. Dentists play a crucial role in the book. Tell us a little bit about that because you meet dentists, you say, with big ideas about how humans lost the ability to breathe and big ideas about how to fix it. There are some extraordinary dentists you go and see, um, the muse, father and son, Uh, And also Dr. Theodore Belfort and some of the things that they tell you, you know, again, so simple and and yet so profoundly can change, you know, your life and patterns in so many ways.
2: Yeah, you don't think when you're researching a book about breathing that you're going to be hanging out with a bunch of dentists. And this is another thing that I just had a hard time getting my head around. But one thing that they told me early on, they said, why do you have crooked teeth? Why does 95% of the population have some sort of malocclusion, some sort of deformation in the jaw? Why do so many people have TMJ problems, right? Why are our mouths so small? And so that's, that's the reason why we have crooked teeth. Our mouths have been shrinking. Over the last 300 years, our mouths have gotten so small, our teeth grow in crooked. They have no room to grow in straight. Smaller mouth, smaller airway equals breathing problems, okay? And with that smaller mouth, the upper palate of the mouth tends to grow up instead of out. When it grows up, it makes it harder to breathe through the nose, so we become mouth breathers. So again, this is not controversial stuff because you can see it so clearly in the skeletal record, but I had never thought of it before, and I didn't think that I would be learning all of this from Dennis, but if you think about who spends the most time in mouths than any other medical professional. Of course, it's dentists. Not only are they looking at teeth, they're looking at airway health. So they're seeing these kids come in with ADHD developmental problems. They have extremely small mouths. With that small mouth, they can't breathe at night. They suffer from snoring and sleep apnea. If you can't breathe at night in early stages of development, it is going to destroy your health. And again, not controversial, but so few people are talking about it. So uh, it's been great to to learn from these dentists. I'm still in contact with so many of them and they're the ones leading the charge on airway health because they're the ones who are seeing these problems first and foremost.
1: And that's why you say you didn't expect to be seeing dentists and I didn't expect dentists to be so prevalent in the book and I didn't expect Chew to be a chapter. And you know you don't expect chewing to be a title in a book about breathing, but it's chewing is key. It wrapped up so much in why we have evolved, or as you say, devolved. I think that's from a Harvard biologist and um, Daniel Lieberman. But the reason, you know, primary reason we've evolved to 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 breathe wrong is because we are we're not chewing enough. Again, is this something we can do something about?
2: yes we can so that that's exactly the the main reason why so many of us have mouths that are so small and uh, by right of that have breathing issues is because of this lack of chewing stress in the early stages of development chewing starts with breastfeeding okay when an infant is breastfed for a number of years it helps pull the face out actually changes the profile after that from soft foods to hard foods. So our ancestors all ate hard foods, right? After they were breastfeeding, they went on to eat the food everyone else was eating. Now we're weaned onto these very soft foods and the modern diet, you just think of all the stuff you ate today, even what's considered healthy, all this stuff is soft. So about 95% of our diet is soft. It didn't used to be that way. We used to chew for hours a day. And when you're chewing, you're building up the skelicature, you're building down the musculature, you're changing the profile of your face and you're helping to extend and expand that airway. So there's been studies done, awful studies, don't don't read them, uh, done with pigs and done with monkeys, in which they would feed them soft foods compared with hard foods. And the ones fed soft foods ended up just looking like humans after a while. Flat face, narrow face, small mouth, crooked teeth. So uh, you can see this happen in a single generation, but you said at the beginning of the program, we're not here to dwell on the negative. I wasn't here to dwell on the negative with the research of this book. What I wanted to do is find the core problem so that we could fix it. And it turns out in adulthood, we can actually absolutely affect our airway health. We can do this by chewing hard foods, or we can do this by exercising our mouths and simulating chewing stress. Uh, It's been found to significantly cut down on snoring and sleep apnea. Those have been done in scientific studies. And of course I was curious in this. So I wanted to see how I could affect my own airway in a year span until I I took a CAT scan before and after and showed about 50 to 20% more space um, in some areas of my airway, just by chewing, by doing these exercises and trying to expand that upper palate to the space it was supposed to have been in had I eaten hard foods when
1: I was younger. It's all absolutely fascinating. And as I knew, my allocated time has flown by and there are so many questions as we also imagined. Um, I'm sure you you get this often, most of them are to do with mouth taping um, and quite sort of practical sort of things. So I'm gonna ask, I'm I'm gonna try and ask them together, the best product for taping your mouth what you do if you have a beard and what you can do to keep the tape on if you have a stuffy nose.
2: Uh, so I don't want to uh, support or promote any specific type of tape. Having said that, I've tried about 20 different brands and I've found one that works for me. Different tape, different tape quality will work for different people for different reasons. So the stuff that works for me is called a micropore tape for sensitive skin. You don't want to get anything with a strong hold. You want to get something that is designed to be taken on and off. So, surgical tape, this is what it's designed to do. And I wish I had some right here. I'm not in my usual office for doing these, but I will try to demonstrate right here um, with a post it note. This is, a, this is how much tape I usually use. And I take it and I take off some of the adhesive and here's the technology, everybody. Uh, I have a beard. As you can see, this is what I do. That's it. Okay. When you take it off, use your tongue. Don't rip it off. That's, that's a rookie mistake I made. And I said, this is awful. My lips are all raw. Use your tongue like a windshield wiper to take it off and it will naturally come right off. You may be thinking, Well, this tape, it comes right off very easily. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. You don't want duct tape or anything that's going to hold your mouth done. You just want a reminder to keep your mouth shut. Just a slight reminder. If at any time in the night you want to go, it will come right off. So another thing I would suggest doing is do not try to get this tape and go to sleep tonight. Get the tape and then use it for half an hour as you're answering emails, or doing the dishes. And then the next day, use it for maybe 45 minutes. Use it around the house while you're conscious in the daytime. This will make the transition into using it at night much easier. And do expect it to be miserable, awful, no fun. Expect the tape to to be on your forehead when you wake up. Expect your spouse or partner to mock you. This is all part of the process, everybody. I've been through it. Everyone else I know has been through it. But once you get to the other side, uh, at least in my, I can speak for my own experience and the thousands of people who have written me, it can be, I won't call it life-changing. It can only have substantial benefits to your sleep hygiene and your breathing. And that's not such a bad thing. Life
1: Life enhancing, as I said.
2: Life enhancing is what I should have used.
1: I think this is a really interesting question because um, you you mentioned what you do in yoga classes and when you're doing these things because you're being instructed. And I think when you're being instructed, you you feel that you should be making quite a significant noise. I mean, I've heard it called oceanic breath. I don't know whether people have heard. Carmen asks, is there a difference between people who breathe quietly and those who naturally breathe audibly?
2: Absolutely. So natural, healthy breathing should be basically imperceptible for someone across the room. If you look at a monk uh, and samurais used to be judged if they were ready or not to enter into the brotherhood, they would place a feather underneath their nostrils and have them breathe. And if the feather moved, they weren't ready. So breathing should be very subtle. It should be very light and slow. If you're sitting across someone who's breathing like this, They have a respiratory disorder okay and this is why you see people with emphysema with copd with covid with long haul uh, uh other issues respiratory issues they tend to breathe like this using other muscles in their body this is not a good thing to be doing twenty five thousand times a day right you should be breathing you should hardly be able to notice somebody breathing that's where you want to get that doesn't mean That's where you are right now. So this stuff takes time and you shouldn't try to kick your breathing's butt. You should do this very slowly and calmly in a controlled way to gently acclimate your body to healthy breathing. If you're someone like me who had very poor breathing habits for decades, it's gonna take a while. But the point of all of this is not to walk around with a wearable constantly tracking your breathing or a notepad It's to condition yourself to make healthy breathing a habit so you don't have to think about it. I don't want to wear sleep tape at night, right? I don't want to always be thinking about this. And luckily I don't because I've been doing this for long enough. I'm always nasal breathing, you know, when I'm not talking, when I'm not laughing. And this is the same thing with with other people. So... That's a lot to take in, but don't view this as some onus, as another thing you need to feel guilty about. It's something that you can focus on if you're in traffic any time of the day, and you can reap the benefits from that.
1: Someone was wondering about breathing techniques for a good quality voice, and you do talk Mm -hmm. about um, singers and choirs in the book. I wonder if you could um, answer that question.
2: Develop the diaphragm. Absolutely. And there was a car, a choral conductor named Carl Stau that did a bunch of incredible work into this. He found that his singers tended to inhale just fine, but they tended to just pack air on top of air on top of air. And when he taught them to fully exhale by developing their diaphragmatic movement. Now the diaphragm is this muscle that looks like a parachute that sits underneath the lungs because the lungs are just two fleshy bags, right? Something needs to inflate them and deflate them. That's what the diaphragm does. So a lot of singers kept their diaphragm in this very low position, just breathing in, but stau found if they extended their exhales and allowed that diaphragm to naturally go up, right? That they were able to significantly improve the nuance and volume and clarity of their voices. And he did this, this research for decades and decades. And it turned out that his breathing techniques were also extremely effective for people with emphysema and asthma, other breathing disorders. So again, there's there's no bad side effects to this. So if you're a singer, you want to develop, your singing more, work on that exhale, exhaling more. But I wanna be very clear, do this slowly, okay? Uh, and do it gently. This is a delicate muscle and it should be conditioned very slowly.
1: Um, I think this is an important question. It is a very specific question, but you talk about people in the book who've got various um, reasons why they can't breathe through their noses. And, and somebody asks what happens if you have, for example, nasal polyps and you can't breathe through your nose?
2: Yeah. So everyone's got a different nasal issue. And this is why you can't offer a blanket prescription to, to everybody So for people who have structural damage, who have structural issues, surgery can be enormously helpful, okay? Uh, If you find a responsible, a conservative ENT, surgery can be a huge game changer. What I learned from Dr. Jayakar Nayak at Stanford is he found that most people don't need surgery. What they need to do is to develop healthy breathing habits. Now. Most people is different than all people, okay? If you've broken your nose four times and you have a severely deviated septum, yeah, surgery is gonna be really helpful for you. But he took a CAT scan of me and he called me a perfect candidate for surgery, uh, which made me even more curious to see what I could do to improve my own breathing. And what I learned from other researchers at Stanford and elsewhere is that by developing healthy breathing habits, By using a neti pot can be shown to be uh, very beneficial. Sometimes a neti fluid, sinus fluid rinse with a low dose steroid, which obviously you're going to have to get from a doctor, can be enormously helpful. So, what I've learned from all this is start low and slow, right? Start with the things that don't require you to spend a bunch of money or require surgery. Try breathing through your nose, try these other hacks, try a sinus flush. And if after that time, you still don't have any luck, then surgery seems like a reasonable next step. And it can be really transformative for some people. But um, how people approach this is up to them. Some people want to go out the next day, get surgery. That's their business, not mine. But uh, I think it would be interesting for you to see what you could do with your natural body before you, you jump into that immediately.
1: A few people have asked about free divers who are, I think sort of the first people that you go and talk to, they send you off on much of the journey. And Diana says, I mean, what is your opinion on free divers holding their breath underwater when relaxed? There is a sense of freedom of holding your breath underwater. Why is that?
2: I'm a free diver and I can, I can speak to that. Uh, When you hold your breath right now with that exhale, that breath holding your heart rate slows down. Okay. And when you, Put your face into cool water, your heart rate slows down about 20%. The deeper you dive while holding your breath, all of these different transformations occur in your body. They're called the mammalian dive reflexes. They're the same transformations that dolphins and whales and seals use to stay under the water for hours at a time and dive to a thousand feet deep. We are imbued with these mammalian dive reflexes as well. So all of these things converge at the same time to turn us into water animals. Uh, I wrote about this in my first book, Deep. Uh, It's something that I experience when I free dive and it connects you to what an amazing vessel this is and how adaptable it is. If we're talking just about breathing and the benefits of breath holding, guess what happens when you hold your breath? You increase your carbon dioxide. Guess what happens when you increase your carbon dioxide? You increase your blood flow. So this is why breath holding is used for people with anxiety and asthma and more, because it's a very quick way of naturally increasing our CO2.
1: I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking that a lot of us associate holding our breath with anxiety and panic.
2: Yes, so what is a fear response? What did we evolve when we were out in the jungles or in the savannah? When we're scared, what do we do? (sniffs) Or we breathe too much, (laughs) right? So when you're holding your breath, that's a response of your body to be silent. Because if someone is stalking you, if it's an animal or if it's someone else, you want to hold your breath to be silent. But we should not be holding our breath throughout the day, right? And so many of us, our threshold for fear is so low now, that when we get an email from someone, we go, Phew. it's so common. It's called email apnea. Dr. Margaret Chesney has been studying this for decades at UC- University of California, San Francisco, which is right down the street from me. So breath holding, when you're doing it consciously, is enormously, has so many benefits to it. This is why the ancients in pranayama, breath holding is part of every form of pranayama, holding your breath, right? but when you're doing it unconsciously throughout the day, this can cause so many problems. It can deny you proper oxygenation and it can give you headaches and more. So I realize this is confusing, but the big difference here is conscious versus unconscious. And you want to be doing controlling your breath consciously. You don't want your body to be defaulting with these bad habits and making you a dysfunctional breather throughout the day and night, which is exactly what's happened to us nowadays.
1: I think we are going to have to insist that you come back again. I know you're very busy, but there are still so many questions. Of course there are. Um, and it's just absolutely fascinating hearing from you. I'm incredibly grateful. I'm certainly going to be watching back with my notebook because there are so many things I wish I'd written down sort of above and beyond um, the book. But Thank you again to everyone for signing in. Sorry if I didn't get to your question. Um, and James, thank you very, very much indeed.
2: Thanks a lot for having me.
0: This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred James Nestor and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and the editor was John Doughty. As ever, we have more live streams with the world's greatest thinkers coming up. Every night of the week this autumn, including linguist and philosopher Noam Chomsky, conservationist Jane Goodall, LinkedIn founder Reid Hoffman, and much, much more. Find it all at howtoacademy.com. Thanks for listening.